Wall Street is full of corruption and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumbine. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar, and we're doing a special Saturday night, uh, if you're in the U.S. anyway, Saturday night uh, broadcast, because I've got a very, very good friend of mine, uh, Professor Steve Keen, who is running for office in Australia for the uh, Senate, and I'm going to let him do a little bit of talking about what he's running for. So without further ado, let me bring on my good friend, Professor Steve Keen. Welcome to the show, sir. Good, good morning, mate, as you can see from behind me. <laughs> Sunrise over here. I'm not sure what I'm doing here. It's like a blue, electric blue. I, mean, I was trying to do mm. something that wasn't quite so uh, in your face, but it seems like it's pretty in your face still. It's pretty nice, so, actually. Yeah. Well, mm. It's been a long time since I've talked. I mean, offline I've talked to you, but it's been a while since I've had you on. And, mm. uh, you know, with you going into politics now, I mean, let's be fair. I mean, that's that's a you're stepping into the danger zone there, going from economists trying to clean up the economy and uh, all the ignorance and debunking the the foolhardy thoughts of the 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 world and now you're going into debunk the foolhardy thoughts of uh, the politicians and the uh the, the entire government of australia needs to be aware that steve keen is coming to town T tell us what what exactly are you doing here well it was the motivation was pre pretty much what you've expressed because uh, you know, we've been talking to a blue in the face about the nature of money creation, uh, the, the dangers of climate change, uh, the dangers of private debt and the stuff I've been working on for Minsky from literally for going on 30 years and actually more than 30 years. And we, you, you hear the same old garbage coming out of politicians all the time. So my thought was the, uh, you know, when I, when the offer came up and it came about in a very roundabout way, um, <clears throat> my thought was, well, I've, I've failed to get the ears of politicians. I might as well try to get the voice of one. And uh, <laughs> it, they, they can still ignore me, but it's going to be written in the, in the parliamentary record, which is called Hansard uh, down here. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I can if I spout my stuff now, it, it only gets written into Hansard in any sense of so a politician hears me, understands me, believes me and has the guts to say it. I don't need all the even. I, I know what I believe. I know what I'm right about. And I'll just say it in Parliament. So that's the main temptation for getting in there. Uh, very good. I, you know, it's it's funny because as I talk to you, I'm usually asking you about the environment. I'm usually asking you about, you know, the climate science mixture of mm -hmm. of lies that we hear from that, as well as the lies we hear from the economics that they use to cover up the environment. Mm -hmm. This is a, a a point that's very near and dear to me, uh, and as an MMTer, uh, which is one of my other interests in bringing you on. Mm. other than you being my friend of course is that i would <laughs> like to know straight up i mean we have an existential climate crisis going on and mm. we have a lot of folks from voters in the u.s to voters in australia and all around quite frankly who take it very simply that it's not that big a deal that mm. nothing has happened yet why do, we've heard about this forever the science mm. is got to be a lie 
And you know, to be perfectly honest with you, as somebody who is absolutely terrified and and possessed with the desire to mitigate climate change, hmm. I look around and I say, maybe it is a lie because otherwise, why wouldn't we be do, moving heaven and earth to fix this? Why wouldn't we be doing it? And 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 it, it's just baffling to me. So it, tell it, me, what's actually, the deal? It's a very simple analogy, and this is the you you would you, if you ever learn to do a mathematics course. One little exercise I'll give you is the idea of a lily that doubles in size every day. And uh, and you've got a multiple choice question, you know, testing your mathematical fluidity. Uh, look, it's, I look like I'm a strip club. This is my mother's photograph in the <laughs> no, background. No, she's, she's talking oh, about me. She's talking about me. Oh, okay. Do, 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 well, fair do, enough. Do, do, yeah, okay. Work in the pole. <laughs> Two sleeves here. <laughs> anyway, um, the, the exercise says is there's a lily that doubles in size every day. Uh, on the 31st day, it covers half the pond. On what day does it cover the entire pond? Now, the correct answer is the next day, 32. Okay? But most people think in a linear fashion, and they'll say one of, the, one, of the, one of the trial answers, rather than being 32, will be 62, which is twice times 31. And something like that, in, in a normal population, about half of the, or more than half the students choose that option. So we think linearly. We live in an exponential world. And uh, that is the problem. So you can look back and say, look, nothing has happened. It just, you be talking stuff all the time and you know, all these warnings and so-and-so said to be 33 billion people and 76 of them would die and all this. You get all this crap thrown at you as well, people not really understanding the literature and confusing different researchers and so on. But uh, fundamentally, yes, an exponential process doesn't hit you into the face until you get 100% of, the, of the, uh, the pond covered. And that'll be on day one day from now. Okay. So nothing, you know, the, the, the idea is the pond can still breathe when there's space that's not covered by the lily. But on day 32, the pond will die. Now people get to day 31. Look, we're still breathing. Nothing's gone wrong. What are, what, what are you annoying us by talking about this stuff? And, and that's, that's exactly the situation we're in now. So ultimately, as a potential, potential uh, senator, what what would you do in Australia, uh, uh, in office, you know, to mitigate that? How how would you approach this debate? Obviously, you would be a a rookie on the scene, uh, mm. but I don't imp get the impression that you would play the rookie card sitting back no, quietly no. in the background. Tell us two what the, Steve Keen would do. First, for a start, two of the previous prime ministers were people I knew at New York University, okay? and uh, I've got a certain amount of respect for one of them. That's Malcolm Turnbull. The other Tony Abbott, I've always regarded as a joke. And one thing, Tony doesn't remember this, I'm sure, um, but uh, he used to erase me several several nights uh, each semester, or each term as it was back then, trying to catch me after being putting up political economy posters at the university. He never caught me. Um, if he had to bash the shit out of me, I know what he's like. Uh, but anyway, so I know those guys. And so, you know, and I'm older than most of the current politicians. So the whole thought that I'd be, having a deference to them is, is just nonsense. I'd I'll take them on. And the main thing is I'm not going to see it as a place to bring about change. I want a forum to get this stuff in, into the ears of politicians, even though they don't, well, I know they don't want to listen. Uh, and also what I can do as a researcher is that you have parties like the Greens, which are there right now, have some good people in them. The guy who's running the Greens right now, Adam Band, is coming across extremely well. Uh, so at the political level, they're fine. I'm going way, way down and saying, oh, you guys are looking at the literature and interpreting it. I'm seeing whether the literature makes sense. And from the economic point of view, 
it's sheer garbage. So the case that the Conservatives, have got like a guy called Tim Wilson, who hopefully will lose his seat uh, on the Conservative side, hopefully he'll be kicked out of by the electors this particular election. But they are coming up with all this trivialisation stuff. And I can say, look, if you want to trust the trivialisation, like, which is like saying the lilies only, uh, you know, it's day three and the lilies growing it so slowly it'll never cover the pond. That's that's what the economists are saying. I'm saying, you you want to really believe that, what you are actually believing is that a roof will protect you from climate change, okay? That the difference between New York and Florida in temperature can tell you what's going to happen when in, in, the GDP difference as well can tell you what happens when New York gets as warm as Florida. Um, uh, all, and the tipping points, tipping points are, are, are trivial. So if you lost um, the Gulf Stream, as, as it's known, you lose the Gulf Stream, lose North the Antarctic, the, the Arctic summer sea ice, lose Greenland, lose West Ant Ant Antarctic, turn the Amazon into a savanna, blow the permafrost out of the uh, out of the uh, tundra, release the ocean methane hydrates. Okay, that's really cool, and and turbocharge and, and, and just destabilize the Indians and monsoon, that will reduce GDP by 1.4%. Now we're talking about a planet that doesn't, is no resemblance to the one we're on right now. And these turkeys think they can do uh, statistical predictions of it. I'm going to say it is garbage, the case on which, if, even though they, you know, the, the 31 day, literally 32 day covering the pond thing is still beyond most people's comprehension. That's not what they're reading. They're reading the economists saying that the lily is growing at a linear rate and will take forever to get anywhere near the pond and we can grow indefinitely. And I say, they, and I don't have to explain esoteric economic theory to them. I just have to say, this is, what, this is the bullshit you can find that the journalists, that economists have published in their journals. And if anybody doesn't realize it's bullshit, they've got a serious problem. It's not that they can't understand mathematical models. They can't understand simple, obvious reality. So I want to get that message across. That's that's one of the main reasons I want to be there. So, you know, one of the things that is obviously a big aspect of the global war that I think all of us in the MMT space and uh, definitely lefties are in is this fight against neoliberalism, the, the, mm. the, the battle against neoliberalism, the false scarcity narratives that are mm. painted to us that leave us in perpetual debt as individuals, Australians, I imagine, are drowning in debt just like Americans are drowning Better in debt. Better than you guys. We have the highest, the second highest level of debt on the planet compared to GDP. Only Switzerland is higher, and most of that Swiss debt is actually a form of business debt. So wow. in, in fact, it turns to household debt for mortgages Australia is the worst on the planet. Talk to me about what you would do to address neoliberalism in Australia and what you would do to help people who are drowning in debt in your home country. Okay, well, the main thing, first of all, is to get across to people that the government effectively is not in debt. The government borrows from no one. It borrows from itself, fundamentally. So what you can show out of that is that the, the, uh, the idea that the government debt is this terrifying thing which is going to crush us all if we don't bring it down then has the impact that, well, we've got to cut back on social services so we can't have decent education, we can't have decent health, uh, all, all these things which only affect the poor because the rich can buy their education, the rich can buy their health. So all the austerity, even though it's imposed across the whole society, only burdens the poor, poor and middle class. So you have a, a theory about government money, which fundamentally lies behind the austerity we've seen imposed globally. And you don't need to be an MMTer to understand that. All you have to be able to do 
is read double entry bookkeeping tables. It's accounting. So look at the accounting. What's the role of government debt here? And it's nothing like what you think it is. The fundamental thing about it is that it's it, the only reason the government issues bonds is so that the Treasury doesn't run an overdraft at the central bank. Now, if it did run an overdraft at the central bank, what rate of interest would it pay? Zero. <laughs> so if I run an overdraft at my bank, A, they don't let me, my transactions get bounced, and B, they'll charge me a, 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 a penalty rate of interest. Uh, the, tre the central bank charges the treasury, either charges the treasury zero or charges them full rate and then refunds it because guess who owns the treasury? The central bank. It's the treasury. So this, that's the, the essence, the, 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 the secret source of fiat currencies that the mainstream doesn't understand and therefore they impose all these restrictions on us now they might not like that's terrible you know you should be you should pay interest on all your debts um you know you shouldn't be able to uh run an overdraft well tough titties guys this this <laughs> is the nature of a fiat monetary system uh it's like saying yeah, gravity shouldn't be 9.8 meters per second squared so you know i i i gotta tell you i um I watch politicians and I I get disgusted. You know, I've talked to them, I hang out with them, I meet them. Yep. I I hate hearing them speak. I literally yeah. want nothing to do with them. Mm. So I I know that you'll be the one that I won't mind talking to should you get elected. But I literally hate it because like I, I'll give you an example in the United States we have a guy named Rokana. And Ro mm -hmm. is kind of like the Silicon Valley progressive, if you will. He's, he's, yeah. I don't know if I would give him progressive credentials or not, but occasionally he flirts with the idea that he's MMT friendly, things like yeah. that. But then when you get together with the minute he has a chance to start tweeting, the minute he has a chance to start talking to people, mm. he goes right back to the very paradigm that's keeping us in chains. Yeah. Immediately goes back to it. There's not an ounce of change agent in him. And so when you look at that and you say, I know you know better, but then when you go over here, you don't say anything. Yeah, yeah. We, to me, in this is the setup for you here. I would rather elect candidates that are willing to be a single-term candidate telling the truth, mm -hmm. that are willing to make a ruckus and bring things to light than people that fight for their political career and sacrifice truth and therefore give everyone false information and then the perpetual cycle continues what are your thoughts on that i well, think I it's totally very important agree. i mean if I, if I go back back in my student days i led uh when I, I i never ran for office at university but i was given the way the art societies and student uh, academic societies work i became president of the art society at sydney university but i led the student revolt against against neoclassical economics in 1973 and as a large part of that we had to get votes by the student representative council and if you were running as a student politician that's what you do you'd stand for the src or you'd stand for the university union they were two separate organizations so i frequently found myself having to go to the src and fight for some uh, motion that we wanted the src to pass to help us in our battle to reform the economics department and i'd watch these turkeys in operation mr speaker and all this sort of garbage <laughs> um and i at one stage i mean i finally just lost lost my this is about two or three o'clock in the morning during one of these src meetings and i just screamed at one of these his name was bernard i can't think of his last name but bernie somebody another bernard was a great friend so if anybody thinking that's bernie bernard carey no it's not it's another bernard and i just ripped at this guy 
that man should be removed from the well fuck you mate so a lot of people thought i was going to go into a career in politics because i mean i led the arts president of the arts society helped form the arts law society i led the economics dispute there's no way i wanted to deal with those people i couldn't wait to get out of the room you know i felt like i have a have a shower each time i went to an src meeting there were some decent people a couple of guys that actually the bloke who became the numbers man for the alp for some time and was the shadow minister for aboriginal affairs he he was the your non-politician politician he could count the numbers like nobody's business okay he, he got the both right every time uh, but when he was shadow minister for aboriginal affairs the the labor party leader sided with the conservatives uh, to try to get what he called the redneck vote and put forward a proposal about aboriginal rights that uh, this guy and i've forgotten his name temporarily would come come to me didn't like so he resigned in principle now can you imagine your you know your guy resigning in principle over they don't do it so i'm i've just had that that's my background way way back you know 40 something more than 40 years ago and now like i'm you know, i'm 69 um i've got a pretty solid career in in academic and, and post-academic world uh, i have offers other offers that i can take up if i don't get elected um and I, I, my, I, my ambition is not to become prime minister or anything like that. It's to stop nonsense at the parliament. So um, I, I'm, I offend people by, by stating truth out there. Tough shit. That's what I'm going to do. Well, you know, I had you and Victor Klein on to talk about the new liberals and uh, this party that uh, kind of recruited you, if you will. Uh, you were interested because they were interested in hearing about the things you were talking about. Talk to us a little bit about the party that you're represented by and the actual district that you're running in and and what are some of the yeah. the issues that you know are making you the candidate to select in that area? Well, first of all, the party was originally called the New Liberals. It was formed by Victor Klein, his wife Catherine, uh, and two other people at a dinner party, and they were whinging away about the state of Australian politics, which is as bad as uh, British politics in terms of having a, a a buffoon as the leader um and the, and catherine said to him well let's stop winching let's do something let's form a party and they called it the new liberals because in the opposition to the states liberal means ra radical you know uh because the republican party has has uh, derided people who say they've got liberal tendencies over here liberal means right-wing reactionary uh, uh religious uh, nutter okay that's because the, the the liberal party here has been taken over by people who have taken over the Republican Party in America. So liberal is a dirty word over here amongst progressive circles. Weird, but that's that's the situation. So then they called it the new liberals to appeal to people who used to be uh, happy to be in the Liberal Party because the Liberal Party used to be progressive socially to some extent, while generally conservative, but back in the 50s and 60s, you might even call it MMT, like old, old Keynesian approach to government spending and, and nation building. And then it's drifted right over time and it got taken over by neoliberals very heavily uh, in the 1980s, not in the 1970s, but the 1980s. So the last non-neoliberal leader of the Liberal Party was a guy called Malcolm Fraser, who at the time I was, I'd march against him. And these days, if he's running, I'd vote for him because he's far more progressive socially and, uh, and had some elements of nation building to him. Um, so that's that's long-winded part, as usual for me, it's long-winded. Um, but that's that's the background. So I was watching this this guy Victor Klein tweeting, and he had this saying how he's going to not just bring a, a, a corruption is a big issue here in politics, 
and he's saying he's not just going to keep the bastards honest, which was the slogan of a previous party. I'm going to put the bastards behind bars. That was quite, you know, oh, okay, pretty aggressive. Out of the blue, he emailed, he emailed or tweeted me and said, I'd like you to be our economic advisor. So I said, okay, well, why is that? He said, well, I've read Debunking Economics. I went, oh, okay. So you're actually aware of where I'm coming from? Yes, et cetera, et cetera. And then so I was being the economic advisor and all the policies of the party are built around the core understanding of, of, that I have from debunking economics that's shared by the other people in the party as well. So awareness about government money creation, uh, opposition to neoliberalism, et cetera, et cetera. That's foundational within the party. <clears throat> and then Victor got confident that there was a chance to run, not in the Senate where I'm now running, which but he was originally running for the Senate but to run for a House of Representatives seat because only from the House of Reps can you become a Prime Minister. And that is his ambition. He does want to become Prime Minister to get rid of the Liberal Party, the current, which are like our Republicans, and replace them with people who are anti-neoliberal. That's that's the objective of the party. So he that meant he the Senate's position was now vacant and he asked me to, um, to uh, take his place. And I thought, well, why not? Give it a try. So you that, know, it's... Yeah. It's funny because I remember our interview on Macro and Cheese and folks, plug, slight plug, Macro and Cheese podcast. Uh, Professor Keen has been on it numerous times, very much a part of the show. Thank you so much for that. So, you know, let's get back to your platform. One of the things that, you know, you, you brought up similar to the Republicans in the United States. I don't think you quite know how bad the Republicans are in the United States. I'm not even joking. I'm going to throw this out there and just sort of tee this up so we can kind of cue off of what's happening in Australia. In just the state of Pennsylvania, the entire ad campaigns are so-and-so, so-and-so supports woke black people. I mean, they're that outrageous. He he supports wokeness. He is too woke for Pennsylvania. So and so is a Second Amendment, meaning gun toting Yahoo. Mm-hmm. He's a gun, he's a Second Amendment, God first, Christo fascist. No, they don't say that, but the point is is that they go through this whole rigmarole. Can you imagine he supported Black Lives Matter? Can you mm-hmm. imagine? And and they show hor- I mean, it's just horrible. It's so over the top. They're yeah, not but, just it's not even about the politician anymore. They're not even fighting about each other's position. They're literally painting people as enemies, regular rank and file people as mm. enemies in, in this campaign. Like this is the way fascism creates yeah, its scapegoats. Uh, the, the tribalism the, yes. the, the same sort of tribalism applies in Australia, not that extreme. Okay, we're not that bad. And I think one of the reasons why we're not that bad is because in Australia voting is compulsory. Now, that is often seen as being a, you know, a, libertarians will say, oh, that's a terrible imposition on people's rights. No, it's not. Voting is transactional. You're voting for a politician. If you politicians know that everybody's going to vote, they can't exclude different social groups. So that limits how extreme uh, the anti-elements uh, can become. Whereas in your country, because voting is not compulsory, they try their best to stop you voting. And, and, and then you end up with this, uh, all the stuff is about mustering your troops to turn up to the ballot. So you get more and more extreme and you're trying to muster your mob to come along, you know, you, you evangelical Christians, gun-toting, blah, blah, blah. They want to make sure all the evangelical Christians vote and discourage all the woke types from voting and then they'll win. You can't do that in Australia. Whether you're woke or you're libertarian, or, or libertarian you've got to turn up to the polling station. 
So that means that that particular case of decay in the American system can't happen here. Uh, or if it does, well, it gets limited much, much faster. So, so we're lucky there. You know, you talked about the Aboriginal issues facing Australia. Hmm. Can you lay out some of those issues and perhaps how you might address Aboriginal uh, concerns? Well, that, that's that's a that's a full policy of the party. So I'm not reading from the party script right now. But if people want to see the right, what they, they are, that's, that, that'll be on, on our website. Now, one thing is, for example, we want to have Aboriginal representatives in Parliament. There should be, there should be a, a First Nations capacity, uh, uh, electorate, so that First Nation voices are held because they're legitimate, genuine, long-term. Uh, you know, they were here first, okay? And you have to acknowledge the First, the first Nations as part of it. Uh, we have, a, we have a, a, um, Australia's day of foundation as a nation is January 1st, 1901. Okay. That was the day in which these two country was formed. Our Australia Day is January 26, which is the day that Captain Cook turned up and to inaugurate the Australian uh, uh, invasion, not it was the exploration at that stage. If you go and read, go, I recommend people who don't know this, go down to Cornell where he landed and take a look at the plaque and you'll see that one of the first things they did was shoot two Aborigines. Mm. So it's not exactly a happy day for the Aboriginal people that is the day that the whites turned up and the enormous amount of racism in our history, not as outrageously, like we didn't bring people in as slaves as America did, that hasn't totally corrupted our black-white relations here, but they're not good, but that's putting it mildly. So one thing we're gonna do is move Australia Day to, Australia, to January 1st, which is the day the country was formed, and then make January 26th on like Reconciliation Day, or some title like that, which said it's more about bringing ourselves back together, admitting the sins that have done, been done, not just in the past, but are still being done. Like one, for example, and this, this is classic MMT, uh, anti-MMT neoliberalism. The, 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 neo, the neoliberals the, uh, put this in what they call an Indu card, which is a moneyless uh, welfare card. So you can't use it as money. You've got to go and buy particular shops, the particular items to stop you wasting government money, that sort of thing. That would be gone under us. Um, so there'd be a whole range of just being realistic and saying, okay, history is 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 shit. Okay, we have a lot of a lot of recognition to do, and a large part of getting over those those conflicts is actually recognition of the wrong done in the past. Uh, that has been stated by the Labor Party previously. Uh, there were two very important speeches about reconciliation in the Labor Party, which did change their policies as well. But the Conservatives they don't want to attack the speeches, but they're slowly reducing the rights over time. You know, we, we are in a period of time right now where the United States, as always, has got their fingers all over the world. They've mm. more imperialism than any of us in the U.S. would like, or at least the people that support someone like yourself for office would like. Mm. And we're watching as NATO, which was originally formed for a whole bunch of different purposes way mm. back in the 40s, uh, we're watching NATO as it still continues to do its job fighting against old Joe Stalin, who's long been buried and dead, uh, where we've watched NATO long outlive its uh, intended life, and we're watching us violate terms and conditions that we agreed to with Russia for many, many years as we've expanded NATO continuously. Mm. We're watching a, a situation going where there are no good guys over there. We got the U.S. Mm. as always playing a proxy war with another major nation 
we've got the rest of the world kind of coming together in, in what I consider to be a very misguided approach to things. I am curious, um, what is your take on the current uh, state of U.S. imperialism and how that might impact Australia, both in terms of real resources, the economy, energy consumption, petroleum, all the other things that this uh, kind of proxy war through the IMF, uh, which has got its hands deeply embedded in Ukraine right now as well. What are your thoughts on on not only the role of the U.S., uh, but also the role of the IMF, World Trade Organization, and the World Bank? Big loaded oh. question for you, Brian. Oh, they're very loaded questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll, work, I'll work backwards. I'm, I mean, I've uh, been a critic of the IMF for, since I was in my 1972 at a university student. I realized what they were doing, imposing austerity programs everywhere. And the, like I've actually had people who were leading staff in the IMF come to see me and say what they what they did uh, with all the adjustment programs they ran and embarrassed, you know, cardinally embarrassed by their role and wishing they hadn't done it and wanting to expose how simplistic everything was. So they would just slash social programs until the budget balance was such that it, the spreadsheet hit the, you know, gave them a blue, a, a green cell rather than a red cell, that sort of thing, incredibly simplistic. Um, so I'd be opposing the role of the IMF there. I'd be, uh, the World Bank is slightly reformed. The World Bank is actually starting to hire heterodox economists now. So I'd be encouraging that. When we get up to the level of the American imperialism and what it's done, I, uh, I, I wrote a paper called the, the Russian Defeat of Economic Orthodoxy back in late 90s, early, early 2000s, talking about how neoclassical economists, uh, and I particularly singled out Jeffrey Sachs, um, had driven um, Russia to uh, have a rapid transition from socialism to capitalism on the idea that that was the only way to do it. It's the right way to do it really quickly. And um, it's a published in a, in a fairly obscure book, but I, I'll, I'll put it up on my website a few times. Uh, so I know that the, 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 the transition itself was stupid. Okay, Only an idiot could think it would work. I mean, there was one, one guy, quite a guy, not, not Murray Rothbard, but Murray somebody rather who's a bit of a simpleton that i i struck at a rothbard's a simpleton too man in my opinion yeah. <clears throat> i know i know um but he he said that uh, uh if you you did this sort of neoclassical backwards reasoning stuff like we know on day three on day 366 which is the first of the year uh when we're going to go to a market system so people knowing that on day 365 won't shop until day 366 and then on 365 they know that they won't shop on the 364. It goes right back and said, right from the very beginning, nobody will do anything until the market comes in. Therefore, we should do it instantly. And look at this. This is one of the lines from his paper. The market will jump to equilibrium overnight. Well, my answer to that is, what market? Okay. We're talking about a country where everything was you know, centrally distributed. There were some prices, obviously. There were prices, but central distribution was the rule. And these guys thought they could abolish that and the market would exist the next day. Well, the market that did exist was the mafia. Okay, they were the ones ready to buy the assets, uh, and 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 people who were ordinary people starved to death. And I'm talking ordinary as in ordinary professors of economics, uh, because I was uh, I visited uh, the uh, what used to be the VI Lenin uh, training center that's now the University of Humanities of, of Russia, and in talking with my, my my equivalent, the head of department there, discussing how big our departments were. Uh, I, I, so I think I had 30 staff in, in my department at the time. I was act, acting head. And uh, he, 
He said, oh, he had you know, maybe more than me, maybe less. He said, we had more. I said, oh, what happened to them? This says, they died. I said, what? And he then explained what happened in the transition. So on the first of, he said, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, a big, big party in Russia. On the 2nd of January, this particular, I'll be back in 91, 92, I think it was, the, all the price controls were removed. And pretty much on average, prices quadrupled overnight. He said, if, and our salaries didn't change. If you didn't have a link to the countryside, you died, you starved to death. Now, that's the brutality of that transition. Okay? So it's no wonder that somebody like Putin grew out of that world. And that's so the, and, and, and Jeffrey Sachs, uh, as I mentioned, I attacked him in this article. I also attacked him, criticized him on Twitter when I was taking a bus tour of journalists through the oligarchs' homes in uh, London about six years ago. And he wrote back to me. He was angry, very angry. And he said, I tried to stop all this stuff. And it turned out that having sold this idea for about a rapid transition, he then got involved in the State Department, which was managing how Russia would undertake its transition. He said he realized the State Department was trying to use this to crush Russia completely. So getting rid of the Soviet Union wasn't enough. You know, they should have done for a Marshall Plan instead that they could exterminate Russia as a, as a rival because Russia still had nuclear weapons. So he said he realized they were actually going to use this stuff to crush Russia. And he tried to stop them. He said he actually, this is a tweet. He said he told Larry Summers Larry didn't care. Okay. That's on the public record from, from Sachs to, to, to me about Larry Summers. So you had this desire, the continuous desire to continue rushing, crushing the Soviet Union and Joe Stalin as if they're still bloody alive. And that's what set up the catastrophe of Ukraine. Now, having said yeah. that, I have friends on the left who was just sort of, you know, they'll, they'll send me stuff about what a bad guy Zelensky is, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. So is Saddam Hussein, according to the Americans. An invasion of a country is an invasion, whoever does it. And I, I initially, I, I thought, first of all, I thought it was saber rattling, basically telling Ukraine, do not join NATO. And there's every reason to say that because, you know, you, you don't want nuclear missiles or a hostile force on your border if you're a superpower. America didn't like it in Cuba. I can understand Russia not wanting it in Ukraine. Fair enough. So basically don't join NATO. If they'd gone further and just invaded Donbass, that I would have said, okay, that's you know, difficult, but this is global politics. I can understand them doing it. And try to invade and crush the whole country was stupid. Okay, It, it, it puts them in the same camp as America invading Iraq and for the same mistaken reasons. Uh, and and it's also looked like it's going to turn to a quagmire for them. I can't see them. They probably crush Ukraine by the sheer force of artillery over time. Uh, but they'll be stuck with a insurgency. The Ukrainians will never accept it, and and they're going to be. It'll be you know if they win the war, they'll lose the guerrilla campaign afterwards. Ultimately, because as the Russians were pushed out of Afghanistan by the Mujahideen and the Americans out of Iraq uh, and and out of uh, Afghanistan as well, at some stage that'll happen to Russia too. So I see it as massive overreach, an extremely bad mistake, uh, and of course thousands, tens of thousands of ordinary people being hundreds of thousands being killed, millions being displaced. So I'm going to give you three quick points that I want to get your take on that's tied to this to some degree anyway. Yeah. Number one, I believe uh, that the United States, recognizing that it had forsaken its infrastructure, recognizing that it was getting lapped by China over and over again technology-wise, that China was now mm. for real building out their uh, One Belt, One Road initiative and mm -hmm. the U.S. didn't have a plan to match that. That mm -hmm. China had literally thought this through end to end. 
the visionaries that were there, right, wrong, or different, whether you like China or not, it's irrelevant. They had a good plan and they've mm. executed and they've stayed true to it. And the country has worked together to make mm. that happen, right? So when Biden gave his State of the Union, he tried to make China the bad guy. It wasn't mm. like China's doing these things to enhance their, it was China's the bad guy. So they were trying yeah. to ramp up Cold War rhetoric to mm. get the funding mechanisms going because that's the only way the United States is willing to spend money is if it spends it first through the military and then it steps on it and gets it out to the people that way. That's mm. the inroad, the ingress, if you will, to, to the economy using the military. Well, Russia, of course, was a secondary one because they still had to clean up Hillary Clinton's election loss that they blamed on Russia and Bernie mm -hmm. Sanders coloring books and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> funny picture of Bernie Sanders with muscles and for a for a gay coloring book, literally to the gay Bernie Sanders. Thing. And they put it out there and they tried to say that Russia was doing this this hacking and all this stuff. And it was very minimal, very, very minimal. It was ridiculous, actually. Mm. So the U.S. had two two targets in mind years ago. I mean, years ago. And this has been going on for some time, obviously. Mm. I mean, so now flash forward. You've got NATO. You've got the EU. You've got uh, the IMF. You've got Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe. And you've got Putin there, just to your point looking at them bringing possible weapons to their border, just like mm. the the whole Bay of Pigs and everything else in Cuba yeah. with the U.S. I, for me, I see this as a constant puppet match that the U.S. does using its SWIFT system, the, the access to the U.S. dollar through these mm. payment systems. And I see it through the IMF as the arm of that and NATO as the police force that enables that whole behavior. Yeah. So with that, it always ends up bringing everyone else into the part into the game, such as Australia even mm. is pulled into this mess. And even if you're not pulled in directly into the mess, you have the residuals because we've gone away from local production and we're on a global supply chain here. Mm. How does U.S.'s interference, number one, impact Australia and what what would your position be or how would your party handle this? Uh, you know, and number two. When you see this form of proxy empire, this neo-colonialism that is no longer, you know, invading the countries per se to take over, they're using the payment system and they're mm. using debt peonage and they're using all these other ways of enslaving and extracting. How would you address that? I mean, is that something that you would turn a blind? I, I, I hate to put it out there like that. Is that something you'd say, not my monkeys, not my circus? Or is that something you feel needs to be addressed on the world stage? Well, I'm, I'm not the monkey that's performing that particular act for the it's TNL. By the way, it's, the party's now <laughs> called TNL because the Liberal Party and Labor Party got together to pass the law to ban the use of any significant word in the in name of an existing party. So we're now TNL on the ballot paper. Uh, but we have, we're based around expertise. Uh, so we, we, we have like an ex-chief you know, scientist for the CSIRO is our climate change advisor. We have a guy called Richard Hames, who's a world expert on diplomacy, who is our advisor on foreign affairs. So Richard will play more of a role in this than I do. But fundamentally, uh, this uh, the the what what you have is America has always been a militaristic imperialist force. Uh, crazily enough, thinking they're liberating the rest of the world as they invade them, um, but China equally has always worked on a sense of tribute. Uh, China would 
uh, have what they literally call vassal states. And there was a requirement to pay tribute back to China. Uh, and if you didn't pay it, you'd have a Chinese punitive fleet coming down to uh, knock on your harbour and get you to re restore the, the tribute. But they'd let the locals continue managing the society and the economy. So that's the historic pattern of China. Uh, America's got this imperialist attitude, uh, you know, military bases everywhere, uh, not, in not, not including Australia, but a couple of military establishments here, including one called Pine Gap, which is designed for spying on the rest of the world. Um, so this, uh, this, this sort of long-term characteristic applies in both nations. And you then have to find how do you as a small nation manage the incursions of two large nations that both have uh, imperialist components to them. Now, the great trouble is Australia's always sided with the Americans. And that's why we made the stupid decision to go into a, a, a Vietnam and becoming a draft resistor, uh, which I, I was lucky to be saved from that fate, but I had my bags packed in case the Whitland government lost. But starting as a draft resistor against Vietnam, uh, then fighting, you know, marching against Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. I've always opposed the subservience that Australia has to America's military incursions. But Australia as a nation has joined in every last one of America's stupid wars. Okay? So we would be opposing that outright. At the same time, we're aware of the Chinese attempt to maintain that sort of tribute influence. Now, one stupid thing the government did here was shut down the Radio Australia, which is our, our, our broadcast arm, which was quite a progressive force. It wasn't like a, a, a like the America, the Voice of America, uh, but it was a news service to the to the Asian Pacific region. They shut that down to save money. Well, what's happened? Solomon Islands, which is very very close to the Australian border, has now signed a, a trade and a military agreement with China. Now, if you've been the conservatives thought, oh, what's the point of broadcasting? We're wasting all this money broadcasting to those, you know, they're, they're racist. These brown people in the in the uh, in the in the uh, in the Pacific. Well, the brown people say, "Screw you, mate! No more trade deals with Australia. We're doing one with China." Okay? So that's stupid. That's we should have maintained our local influence. We should be seeing ourselves as part of a community. We are the oddball out down here. We're a predominantly European white nation uh, in in an Asian section of the world. So I would want to see more integration. Uh, with with our neighbours, more of a, a regional awareness. And when you look, I also have, a, you know, I've got one foot in Thailand with my wife this time. We're living in Bangkok now and I've come down here for the campaign. Uh, so I'm aware Thailand has been extremely clever at keeping foreigners out for its entire history. It's possibly the only country on the planet that has never been conquered by another country. It got burnt, burnt by Burma in a war that really shaped their personalities, but they drove the Burmese out again. So Thai culture goes back two and a half thousand years. And, and they have that awareness of how you can negotiate and maintain your independence. So I'd like Australia to learn from Thailand rather than being subservient to America. You know, I, somebody left a comment and I just want to state for the record, um, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist, but I have been to China <laughs> and uh -huh. um, I've been to Beijing. I've been to Shanghai. I've uh, worked in the uh, with the business community through grad school and stuff like that, understanding uh, foreign, uh, you know, the international uh, business community and setting up businesses within China. Um, you know, part of the uh, alumni program was showing us how we could be kind of like a uh, a sponsor, if you will, for other U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they have like a, a, mod, a mediator of sorts that acts as the local liaison to American companies and, and so mm -hmm. forth. So I, I've actually been there. I've witnessed it.
but also and full disclosure i've done five extraordinarily deep deep dives into china here uh over the last probably four or five months since you know china became kind of the scapegoat for biden's uh spending plan here mm. and you know we we've talked with several um Yen Ling, who is an MMT economist, a Chinese MMT economist married to none other than Eric Timoin. Um, oh, and yeah. we've also spoken uh, with another gentleman um, I, whose name escapes me at the moment, but you can check it out on Macro and Cheese. We've had two economists that we've talked to, and we did a deep dive on the history of China. Mind you, it was only going back to the 1900s, really. Uh, up through the end of the Mao dynasty, uh, to, you know, 1976 when he passed away. Mm. So we got through an incredible amount of China. I'm very, very aware, more aware than I ever was about the role, the way China operates uh, and so forth. And trying to diagnose Chinese culture through American eyes is really the real regrettable thing someone could do. Um, mm. You know, trying to look at someone else's culture through your own cultural lens, mm. uh, doesn't really it gives you a false positive it's kind of hard to understand the interactions the culture the society mm. the way things are done uh without actually being part of it and and so i think that from my perspective uh i don't demonize china i see china mm. as just another country that has its own way of doing things some of them are really good got mm. a lot of literacy they make sure everybody has great schools great health care you name it there are other things that are oppressive on free speech. There's other things mm. that they have going on there too. United States does it too. I mean, my God, we we oppress people in this country every single day. Mm. So I don't stand on my soapbox here and wax poetic about how bad country A is versus country mm. B. I recognize they all have different interests. Sometimes they're in line with mine. Sometimes they're in line with someone else's. That said, mm. what is your take on military intervention as a whole like in general yeah. what is your it, stance on that it is it is crazy it never leads to the outcomes that uh, the people uh, expect for it okay um so i uh, and in fact that was my my by the way my first went to china in 81 82 and i did a tour of australian journalists to meet chinese journalists and we then did a tour of the country uh, uh, over about three weeks so my knowledge of china goes back a hell of a long way um, and that would have been for how I how I talked about the country as well. Um, yeah, so the military invention always leads to outcomes which are the opposite of what the people are arguing for it do. The only military invention I can think of which actually achieved the objectives that it had for it was the Vietnam invasion of, of Cam Cambodia to get rid of Pol Pot. That's about the only one. And we know how extreme the Pol Pot regime was. And it came about because Henry Kissinger persuaded Richard Nixon to bomb Cambodia to hit the supply trains that the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese were using to bring arms down into South Vietnam. And that, as it happened, the bombing that went on there, the only group that managed to avoid being crushed by it were the, were the Khmer Rouge who'd gone into the jungle. And of course, what the, what the American bombing did was wipe out the progressive, but not uh, mad as a hatter, elements of the left, so that when, when, the, when the war was over, uh, the only strong group was the Khmer Rouge, who then led to those ground zero arguments about eliminating intellectuals. These would have had me killed <laughs> in Cambodia, right. okay? Wearing glasses. Um, and so that a bizarre period. And then when, when uh, 
I think it was, if I forgot, it was Hung Sen, I'm not sure of the name of the Vietnamese leader, decided we had enough of the Khmer Rouge, we're going to invade and drive them out. And within 13 days, that war is over. And you now have Cambodia as quite a, a, a in, in terms of its functioning, it's now working as quite a successful society. That's the only military invention I can think of where the objectives were achieved. Everything else was a disaster. And that includes, of course, what's happening in Ukraine right now. Certainly Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, all these things. They end, you, and, and people who do the invasions normally don't even understand the internal dynamics. So I, I was laughing about, laughing, it was a tragic laugh, but Bush invading Iraq, not knowing that there were Sunni and Shiites, you know? And what you were doing was, you know, in, enforcing one religious group against another religious group uh, and removing the controls. Well, what do you expect is going to happen? So um, it, it, this, this absurd ignorance, people who do a military intervention almost always do not understand the country they're invading. And that appears to apply to Putin right now because he had no idea of the strength of, of Ukraine nationalism that he's now coming up against. And, and, and therefore what happens is very different consequences, not just for the country you're invading, but also for the invader. You know, I, I think to myself, uh, it's now that I'm speaking to the renegade economist himself, Steve Keen here, folks, um, I, you know, I think to myself, what United States and what other countries seem to do is twofold. Number one, the neoliberal paradigm uses these military maneuvers to clear markets, basically, to create markets. And the other but aspect is... Markets, actually, that's, you know... You know yeah. But they, their idea here is we can rebuild it, $6 million, man, da, 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 da. we can make it better, faster, stronger, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is that because this they've boxed themselves into austerity, the only way they can seem to get approval for the kind of spending that is needed to keep the bathtub full in their own local economy mm. is through spending on the military. I know for yeah. a fact in the United States that they have spread every aspect of the planes they build to every state in the, in the country, basically. Mm. Buttons are in Iowa, zippers are in Seattle, you know, seat covers are in Maine. You know, and they've got every aspect of it. So if you cut the plane, you cut the spending for all the states, and now everybody ends up losing that income because the race to the bottom, you know, mm. from the currency issuer to the currency user. Mm. This is military Keynesianism at its finest. The only way that we can get money into the economy is to gin up a war. What is your thoughts in terms of how you could turn military Keynesianism on its head because to me, this seems like it is a vital thing right here, right now, because the footprint, the, the climate footprint, the carbon footprint mm. of the military actions that are taking place mm. is so deleterious to the current environmental conditions. Forget the people even for a minute. Mm. The future generations are going to pay heavily for our lack of taking a direct action. How would you how would you address this this the one true way to get money into the economy is salute the flag and spend mm. on the military. It seems like it's the only way countries are willing to spend. Well, the trouble is, I think that's actually part of humanity. I think it's, uh, we're far too close to the chimpanzees and not close enough to the bonobos on the spectrum of, uh, <laughs> of, of simians. Uh, so that's, yeah, I, 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 I wish that you know, we need, we need, if we, if we'd evolve closer to the bonobos, then we'd be watching, you know, Porn rather than rather than military, you know, murders. I mean, the number of murders you see in a tele television show after seven o'clock are ludicrous. People being killed left, right, and centre. 
that's reinforced. You don't see any sex. Oh, that's terrible. Can't have sex. Um, it's, it's, it's part of human madness that we do that. Uh, so I'm not going to say I've got a complete cure for it. But uh, once you realise that the government doesn't have to tax in order to spend, and that's because we learned that in the Second World War, you'll, you'd know the Burn Beardsley Rummel paper, uh, Taxes for a Spending are Obsolete, uh, way back in 1946 when the president of the New York Fed. So we learned that and we've forgotten it again. So what the, the major part behind MMT is to say we don't have to, um, you know, the government doesn't have to tax in order to spend. It can create welfare, create education, create all these things which are better done by the state than done by private institutions to begin with. And uh, because in that sense, you don't want your access to be determined by how wealthy you are. Okay? That's the main reason. Uh, you want everybody to have good education, everybody to have good internet, everybody to have good health care. And if you let it done by the market system, only those who can afford to get it, get it, and therefore you get a distorted and dysfunctional society. That's that's the basic case for it. So once you realise the government can create the money for that, then that's what you do spending. You distribute the house bills everywhere, distribute the schools everywhere, uh, do the infrastructure everywhere. You don't need to do it to the military. Now, the trouble is with the jingoistic mindset we have, where we've got a tribal attitude towards our rivals, the easiest one to sell that gets that, you know, back of the brain, you know, cerebellum, whatever the element is that's, uh, that's, that's, that's slavery, that, that's hostility-based, that, that bypasses all the stupid reasoning that gets us neoliberalism. So that's why they yeah. the military work at the back of the brain, okay? We want it to the front of the brain, and so we don't have to do that stupid stuff anymore, and let's transcend this error and get the spending that you want across the whole country for doing good stuff rather than bombing the shit out of our uh, alleged rivals somewhere else on the planet. Yeah, I spoke to a Pakistani economist named Akdaz Apsal the other day, mm -hmm. and Akdaz made mention that what we've got happening right now is the end of globalization at the moment. Yeah, definitely. We're going to see a massive pull toward nationalism once again mm -hmm. and possibly a return to colonialism and watching it's countries fighting over territory wars. His yeah. take on this was to other like even to Pakistan and India, guys, get your shit together, start finding a way to bond, get over whatever problems you had when you were one yeah. country, get over them, get back to it because the bad guys are coming. They, they, they will come to pilfer and plunder. They will come to offer you a deal you can't refuse. You better get your stuff together. He was talking to the global South too, South America, Africa, you name it. Mm. And it was the idea of, of this is the washerance repeat cycle as fascism is showing up all throughout the world. And it's not new, but it's really bold and naked right now. How would you address that in office? How, how would you address that? Well, I mean, you've got to be prepared and realize it's going to happen. I mean, one, one thing which um, uh, I agree is the globalization will collapse because when you need the um, um, the the uh, the capacity to produce domestically because your supply chains. We've got this crazy level of globalization, uh, far too much, far too long a supply chain, basically exploiting cheap labor. It's they call it a comparative advantage. It's got nothing to do with that, the nonsense theory. But that's justified this enormous uh, long supply chain combined with just-in-time manufacturing systems. So you have very small buffers and very long production chains. Long comes just even COVID, and suddenly those production chains get cut. When global, when climate change starts to destroy the capacity to uh, to, ex to to export, I mean, 
we, we, we haven't even seen the beginnings of what it's like when the lily goes from 31 to 31 and a half days across that pond. When that starts to hit, then you will, you will, you will be trying to reduce our carbon consumption dramatically. Uh, but in doing that, the supply chain will also break down. So the only way to cope with this is to have much more regionally based production. Produce on this, produce what you can at the smaller scale as possible within within a regional area. So, for example, I don't think it'd be possible to produce electric cars in Australia. A market is too small. Okay, and electric cars aren't the solution anyway. But you then say, well, let's what's what's the scale at which we can do that? That means we don't have as much international trade and so on. Uh, so that's one side. That that's one way, a positive way to address it. But the other side, you're talking about colonialism rising because of resources, and that is going to happen. Uh, for, and Australia could well be a victim of that because we have the world's second largest reserves of lithium. Now that, you, you, and then that front, looking at the amount of lithium that exists, and there's excellent research by I think I've told you about before called Simon Meachow, an Australian minerals engineer now working in Finland, and he's done the numbers very, very carefully on whether we have enough minerals to go from a a fossil based fuel based economy to a, what he calls a minerals base because we've got to use you know lithium for the batteries and all the all the rare elements for the solar cells and and so on and he said we simply don't have the resources so we want to going to attempt to maintain the current standard of living which we will do despite the unsustainability of that then there will be wars you know, you've got to supply us our lithium now australia could say well we've got enough lithium for us okay we can use right. it for our own and we're going to do that that's quite possible, okay? I think we're going to descend into a form of rival nationalisms out of that. Um, and that is going to lead to you know, great power saying, well, we're not going to let you do that because we want to maintain our life standard, living standard. We need your lithium to do that. So I can expect some pretty ugly times coming our way, frankly. And I, I don't, when people say, people have to say, how are you going to address it? They're saying, tell me how you can do something that I'm going to like the outcome for. I don't think I'm going to say that. Right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We always think that we're going to always have this, you know, hero story at the end that everybody wins yeah. and the the fairy princess gets crowned and Prince Charming is whatever. Nobody wants to face the fact that don't look up. Nobody wants yeah, to exactly, face the fact exactly. that, and, and you know, the tsunami that comes, you know, or that the uh, drought that comes or the new viruses that are coming out of the mm. permafrost melting, uh, whatever, the old new viruses, you know, whatever has been trapped under the ice coming back to mm. earth and saying, hey, remember me? And, mm. and so I, I wonder, I wonder if if we're talking honestly here, you know, as, as we look at, you know, your candidacy and, uh, you know, I, I think to myself, what is a message that you would want to deliver to an Australian in your voting district, the district where you're running for office, what is mm. the message you would want to give them to make them understand? Number one, you're trying to get elected, but number two, you're trying to tell the truth here. How do you do both at the same time? Yeah. I mean, partly I've, I've got to give a, a message that uh, is a bit, a bit like Winston Churchill's speech. I can promise you nothing but pain, uh, toil and sweat and tears. Um, and that was, uh, you know, I've, I've got plenty of friends who are uh, anti Winston Churchill, but that was one of the world's great speeches because he's saying there's, it's not going to be fun fighting the Nazis. It's not going to be fun beating Hitler, but it's got to be done. And so that perspective is the one that I'm bringing to climate change. Now, partially, I can say 
that uh, there are things like we've, we've just destroyed our education system, we've um, uh, undermined health, et cetera, et cetera. We don't, we shouldn't have done that, and not and, and making those things better is the major thing we can improve over overall. But uh, there's going to have to be just to cope with, to get get us back to the stage where our civilization is sustainable on this planet. There, I, I'm definitely a fan of what's called degrowth. We have to drastically reduce our consumption levels and reduce our footprint on the planet over time. And it won't be easy. It won't be nice. It probably won't be done in a fashion that's regarded as, you know, honouring people's individual rights. Uh, that's the, the thing is, if we don't do it, we're going to end up in Mad Max territory and end up back with, you know, Viking wars uh, of, of the 21st century uh, if we don't do it. <laughs> So uh, I, I it's agree an ugly vision of the future, but I, I want to produce the least ugly outcome. You know, I, I, I look at the, I, I talk about this a lot because I'm fascinated by it, but as the Roman empire collapsed mm. and the fringes, the edges, which is where the least amount of control existed and mm. so forth, as they withered away and died on the vine, literacy was lost. Death became rampant. Warlords took over. The yep. vacuum for power was great. When you lack literacy, you lack, you know, any kind of cohesive organization and you have factionalization, you got a lot of problems. Add mm. in the, the, the black plague that came shortly thereafter. And you've got the makings of some really horrific, uh, you know, the middle ages were pretty dark, right? The dark middle ages, you know, save for the Canterbury tales. But with that in mind, I see a little bit of things like that as we we've gone into this dif, disinformation world, right? This yeah. world where we truth it's a post-truth world. And and I think that for people like myself who are desperately seeking truth, we're not satisfied when someone doesn't give us the truth. I know I'm not satisfied yeah. with that. A lot of people though, and this is where you have to walk a, a line that I'm very yeah. concerned about. A lot of people come home from their day job. They're extremely exhausted. Mm. Their family is struggling. They've got debt through the nose. They've had asset bubbles creating higher mm. prices of rent, higher prices of homes. Everything is outpriced. The, the look and feel of life is very grim. How do you take your message? And because we're, we're both long-winded dudes, how do we take our message? and encapsulate it into a, a time piece that they can consume in five minutes or less. How, how, do, how do we do that? Very, very difficult, I agree. Um, a, a large part of it is saying that the inequality that's been generated by neoliberalism has to be reversed, that you can't impose the cost of adjustment on the poor. It has to be imposed on the rich. You've got to find a way that the burden of bringing our standard of living as a species back in tune with what the planet can support has to fall on the rich. And, and that's, that's the, uh, the basic message. So we're not saying, as, as, uh, as Macron did to what became the gilet jaune, you've got to pay more for your diesel. Okay? And then bang, that only hits the poor. So you have to start with that awareness that everything that's been done has to uh, focus on the uh, inequality and reverse it. Uh, and that is extremely hard. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm really doing in some ways is saying, I simply want awareness of the problems because you start putting the solutions out there. People are going to say, I don't like those solutions. I want the nice ones. I want the Walt Disney ending. I don't want the, 
uh, Quentin Tarantino ending. And I say, well, you know, your odds, odds of Walt Disney are about one in a hundred, and Quentin Tarantino is ninety-nine in a hundred. Um, and I want to be prepared for a Quarantino, a Quarantino outcome, so I want to make sure, you know, we've got uh, uh, you know bullet buffers on the outside of buildings. Um, so largely, it's saying these are the problems, and then trying to get some policies brought forward, which will give us a capacity to cope with them. So one of the major ones I'm looking at is the need ultimately for carbon rationing. I think we'll be forced into a world where we have to ration carbon consumption, and it has to be on a per capita basis. A first step towards that is a rationing system, and a form of rationing system which would work is a central bank digital currency. So I'm going to be arguing for a central bank digital currency. It makes uh, dealing with the public easier in terms of uh, running a, a deficit and putting money in people's bank accounts to do it that way. Uh, I want to reduce the level of private debt. Uh, and, and that is also can be done through the same mechanism. So something of that nature I want to put in place. And then the thing is, when the shit hits the fan and people no longer have to say, you're talking shit because I'm walking in it instead, uh, then you have mechanisms which can cope with that awful world, the Quentin Tarantino outcome, rather than the Walt Disney. Yeah, I want to I want to bring this up because uh, one of the I'm going to pull it up here real quick. Uh, me and you have talked about this specific comment right here actually and it, i'm not sure that this individual didn't pick it up from one of our podcasts maybe they just happen to know this too but we talked about thorium previously mm. and we thought talked about the fact that that was the one possible nuclear power uh option uh that had a low low uh pollution output that maybe maybe if produced in mass quantities could in fact do what we needed to do but we said even that wasn't enough because we not only have to get to zero in terms of production, but we've also got to get rid of what's already in the air, so to speak. So we've got two two battles that we have to go through. And you came up with something that spoke to my good old central planning heart, and that was the idea that possibly need uh, you know some authoritarian measures. And you even said that just a minute ago, where we might not be able to dance around with everybody's uh, you know civil liberties. Mm -hmm speak i you know obviously that's very concerning but with the thorium reactors and so forth i know a lot of people are very anti-nuclear uh and with good cause i mean even japan right now is looking at firing up the the nuclear reactors to make energy now that this war has gone on with russia it's really impacted mm -hmm. them tremendously and the people are de terrified of firing up that after you know what happened with the meltdown and from the tsunamis and earthquakes and so forth what do you what do you have to say about nuclear in in, in a um in in this fight here okay well look for first of all it's not a policy of tnl okay so they tnl is all in favor of renewables and that's what the party's putting forward personally i've been continue reading in nuclear uh, technology and for example one thing i didn't realize was that water moderated reactors uh, can have passive safety in them. That if the water disappears, you no longer slow down the neutrons sufficiently to enable them to be absorbed again. And when the water's no longer there, uh, you, you, the rate reaction stops. So that actually applies to whether you're talking about a uranium reactor or a thorium reactor. So that is a, uh, a reason that nuclear is safer in general, even leaving whether you're talking thorium or, or uranium as part of the process. So I think a lot of the opposition to nuclear is based on outdated notions. When you used to use, uh, I think they were graphite rods to slow the uh, neutrons down, uh, and you had a different coolant. Uh, if the coolant failed, 
then you you can have a meltdown process, which is what we had at Three Mile Island. Uh, and, and so that that particular danger is not there uh, with, with whichever nuclear fuel you're talking about with the modern reactors. This has taken you know this engineers decades to get to the point where they work out a, a generally safe system. So we have that level, and we can consider replacing uh, fossil-based fuels with nuclear. But uh, my problem there is simply scale and speed. Uh, we, we are we, humanity is at the moment set up for production of solar cells at scale and speed. Uh, they've got all sorts of weaknesses in terms of the amount of land area needed, uh, degradation due to temperature, et cetera, et cetera. But we've got the engineering already pumping them out. Uh, we don't yet have anywhere pumping out small nuclear reactors, whether they're thorium or uranium. So, uh, and knowing how long it takes to turn a concept into a product, this is where Elon Musk's wisdom is extremely important. He said, designing, it's easy to make a prototype, it's really hard to produce. So. I, I accept all the arguments from the engineers I know who are pro-nuclear, uh, but I think in terms of the speed of transition, we'll be faster scaling up uh, uh, renewables, even given the limitations and mineral availability, than it will be to say, let's do it all with nuclear now. So it's part of, I think C-nuclear has to be part of the mix, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we can maintain the trend we're on. We are using too much of the planet's resources, and we're and we're stressing it, all the sorts of garbage we're throwing in as well. We're, we think, oh, if we get, get carbon dioxide solved, everything's hunky-dory. No, it's not. We're destroying the biosphere in other ways. We're breaking down biodiversity, deadly extension. We have to go backwards. Uh, E.O. Sloan was in favour of Wilson Sloan was in, was a, was in favour. E.O. Wilson was in favour of us um, uh, using no more than half the planet. We have to make objectives like that. It, our objective has to be the custodians of life on the planet. And that means a complete shift in how we think about our role as a species on this planet. You know, one of the people that you helped me hook up with for Macaron Cheese has become one of my favorite people as well, though I'm not nearly close to him like I am you. And that's mm -hmm. Jason Hickel. His efforts oh, yeah. uh, in the divide and less is more. And, um, you know, some of the other work that he's done is amazing. And mm -hmm. I, I have become quite enamored of his worldview. Uh, the way he puts things out there. I mean, to me, one of the big selling points for a Steve Keen candidacy, if I were in your district, would be your access to so many other voices, not just on some professional level, mm. but as a friend. You can pick mm. up the phone and call great minds. You, you, you have proven to me time and again that you're willing to do the dirty work, the hard work. And, and that, you know, aside from the Jason Hickels and the Michael Hudson's and the other folks that you're close to, you know, I appreciate the accessibility you have to people like myself, even, I mean, I, I don't take this for granted. I think this is an incredibly important aspect of who you are. And, and as a result of that, I, I wanted to bring up something that I know is very important to you. And that is your Minsky software. Mm, okay. um, yep. Obviously it's a step beyond me. But these same voices that I just mentioned, wouldn't it be great if somehow or another we could get them looking at Minsky software to help model these economic outcomes in, in a way that is consistent with the, the known infrastructure, the known uh, real world, if you will, of a fiat currency, in particular, modern monetary mm -hmm. theory, which, you know, is my, my most important thing I'm going to bring up here. I want everybody to learn this stuff. But you've got the model. You took the time to build the model. 
So this, this exchange where you've got friends that you talk to, how do we get them to work with Minsky? What would you like to tell the MMT community about Minsky and how you would like to work with them? Okay. Well, that's, I've had a, a strange career. I've had my foot in physics and engineering and computer programming and a few other areas. So that's partly why I have such a broad approach to how I get things done. Um, but yeah, Minsky, I built Minsky really to able, enable money to be modeled. And my starting point was uh, to begin with uh, credit money, credit money creation. But because it simply explains how money is created, it can explain MMT as well. And it's now at the stage where it's usable enough, sophisticated enough uh, for an ordinary user to have a, a go at mod modifying it. Wait, can I actually take over the screen for a second, put these glasses down and show you a bit? Is that possible, Steve? <laughs> yes, you're okay. fine. Okay, I'll share. Okay, so I'll share the screen and just go bang, and it's got you know, the infinite recourse coming up there. Okay, so that's this. This is a Minsky model of what I call a monetary reset, but that's a bit complicated. So I'll start with a blank one. But I want to show people if you want to make the case about the government being able to create money and not needing to borrow, Minsky is the only software package that enables you to do it. So you create what's called, we call a, a, a godly table in honor of Win Godly. And uh, I'll just make this uh, editor mode so you see the double entry bookkeeping on the screen. And I'll just call this the banks or bank, let's call it banks, the banking sector. And then you show, well, what actually, it, we, we're able to edit in the window, by the way, but it's a bit clunky compared to how we can bring up a little pop-up window. So I'll do that, make the window a bit la larger, pardon me. And I want to say, well, uh, our bank have reserves. They have loans, and then there are deposits, and you can treat the equity of the banks as just called it banks, okay? And then say, uh, I, I, if I was doing a default model, I'd include initial conditions there, the historical situation. But uh, if you have a government running a deficit, actually, let's say, say a bank lending, what happens is banks increase their loans by a flow called lend, lend per year, and that goes into deposits. That's bank money creation. That's all you need to know to understand that banks banks create money. But if you have government deficit, then what the government does is it puts a deficit, which means it's putting money in your account here, and that's balanced by going into reserves. So the deficit creates reserves. Now reserves don't earn any any money for the uh, banking sector, so they get they're getting deposits, which in the old days they used to pay interest on. The asset they get doesn't earn any money. For them to come. so we'll help you out there we're going to create bonds uh and so we're going to sell bonds to, to match the uh, um uh the, what was given you in terms of reserves oh that's great okay we can just take money we can use the money you've created in the deficit above uh and we we'll, that reduces our debt our reserves by bond amount of money per year and adds bonds and then you you nice treasury you're going to pay interest on those bonds so that's going to be money we get over here. So that's interest on bonds. Um, and that to balance that, you increase our reserves. Okay. Now that is MMT in a nutshell. That's all it takes to show that that's, and when you can say, well, why do they sell? Why does the government do it? Well, one re good reason is that the banking sector is effectively giving you the finances for the, for the country. And so the interest you're paying to the to the banks 
effectively as recompense for running the the the, uh, the monetary transaction system we need in the private sector. So that's a completely different vision of the role of government bonds and debt and so on. And then I can go back and I can add just I'll just quickly do this. I don't want to spend the whole time as a tutorial on Minsky, <laughs> but I can call this one the central bank or I'll call it the Fed. And what you can you show can there. You can call it the Australian Central Bank or whatever. I can't make it too too strange for Americans. Okay, so reserves are <laughs> well, there I'm now. i to help you, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll change it to the RBA in that case. Well, then what, what, what actually happens at the Treasury level is the Treasury has an account at the Central Bank as well. It pays for the deficit. And I've got the metamorphosis. I haven't got lowercase lower there rather than uppercase. So the deficit comes out of the Treasury account. So do the interest payments. That's why the, the government would issue bonds to cover the interest payments as well. And the bond comes back and the, the flow of bonds, so long as the bond flow is equal to deficits plus the interest, the Treasury maintains a, a non-negative account at the central bank, meaning it doesn't have a um, overdraft. So that's, that's in a nutshell, that's MMT. And I, you can go well beyond that, of course. You can do a model, and that's what I've done with... Uh, this this one over here, where I'm modelling what happens if you uh, have a, a what I call a monetary reset, where you use the government's money creation capability to cancel private debt. Uh, that's the sort of thing I want to see uh, people building in Minsky. But it's it's time that the MMT mob realise this is a free tool. Pick it up, run with it, teach people this way. Uh, and once you show the accounting, you know people will foam at the mouth. But it's okay. Well, okay, foaming at the mouth. I must have made a mistake. Where's the mistake? Show me. Uh, well, uh, uh. So, and, and I describe it as being a bit like this. Minsky, with double entry bookkeeping, is like a telescope with astronomers in the 1500s. You might believe that the Earth is the center of the universe, heavens are perfect, we're flawed. Look through this telescope and see the craters on the moon. Okay. How did that happen? Well, heavenly bodies must have collided with each other. <laughs> therefore, the heavens can't be perfect. And therefore, that was a huge part of the. The, the, take, take the wool off the eyes in the 1500s. Double entry bookkeeping does it now, and Minsky is the tool to do that dynamically. Amazing. Very, very good. Bravo, sir. <laughs> and I appreciate you doing this. We wanted to do this previously, so it's nice to be able to do it now. Here's the way I want to close this thing out, because we've been on here a little bit, and I'd love to talk to you all night long. This has <laughs> been making my day. But I want to give you an opportunity to make your pitch to the Australian people, um, really as if, you know, this is it, man. The camera's on. Everybody's <laughs> lined up. They're like, Steve Keen, I got to hear this guy talk. And the lights are shining on you now, sir. <laughs> okay. Well, the pitch is we need experts to make decisions about the complex world in which we live. And the politicians we have right now are not experts. They are fundamentally selected because they want to be in control. Uh, so you need people who have come, come from a, citizens who have deep understanding experts in their field, you want them making the decisions about the complex world we're in now. I happen to be an expert on money, on, money, on financial crises, and unfortunately now also on climate change, because I didn't want to have to develop in that area, but what's been done is so bad. So you need us making those decisions rather than the not fundamentally narcissistic lot who go into student politics at the age of 18 and become prime minister at the age of 48. Um, so elect me to the Senate to bring the knowledge that I have into the Senate without fear or favour, I'll be annoying both sides of par Parliament by saying what's real about government spending, what's real about the dangers of private debt versus public debt, 
and what's real about climate change, bring that realism to the Australian parliament. And we have to be prepared for enormous challenges that are coming our way. And unfortunately, the people we elect are all short-term thinkers. You need long-term thinkers. That's where we come in, both myself and TNL. End of pitch. I'll leave it at that. I love it. I love it. I mean, let's 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 give the man a round of applause. Not only did he give us a tutorial on Minsky, not only did he break down the environment and possible solutions, but he talked about nuclear power. I mean, so much. Steve, you are such a wealth of information. I really, really appreciate who you are, and I hope you win. I really do. I, I know that you're up against tall odds. So here's my pitch to the MMT community, those of you, especially my friends in Australia, and there are many folks, get out and help this man. Help this man win. And when is the election? It's on May 21. Look, so thank, thank you for asking, stating that matter, Dan, mate, because the biggest problem we have, we don't have any money, okay? I, I've raised an, enough to cover my registration costs for myself and one other candidate for the Senate. That's pretty much it. Uh, we have leaflets uh, on our my website. Website is called Keen for the Senate. I'll actually bring that up quickly again if I can share screens once more. Just sure. I'm putting absolutely. my glasses on. So we've got that. Okay. So I'll just bring it up first of all, then I'll then I'll share screen. Okay. So let's go back here and share screen now. That's my website. Very basic. I put it together. I haven't got any staff to do it for me. Uh, if you click on uh, how to vote. I'll give some advice about the electoral system over here. The main thing is under brochures, and the three main brochures we have there are a, a campaign brochure, or two brochures, two, two, two things, a campaign brochure and then a how to vote card. Now, we're still finalising the how to vote. We've got to write the preferences on. We haven't done that yet, but we, we have worked out who we're giving our preferences to. And the Australian system, by the way, you, uh, you don't just vote, you know, X against Republican or Democrat. You vote in order. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six for the parties you want. If your first preference doesn't get it, your second preference does, and so on. So uh, we, for, you know, people can find that stuff on the web. But to really make it work um, at the national, at the, at the state level, I need people handing out how to vote cards at electorates and polling booths. Now there are two thousand, there are fifty-one electorates in New South Wales, roughly hundred thousand people in each, hundred thousand voters, and there are pretty much forty. Uh, polling station. That's 2,000 stations. And the election starts at 8 o'clock in the morning and finishes at 6 p.m. on the Saturday, 10 hours. We need people there to, to print out my leaflet. Go, go to a local printer, use your own dot map, your own uh, laser printer or, or inkjet printer, print them out and hand them out to people. And that will at least give us a chance to penetrate the vast majority of the population that doesn't do the sort of stuff Steve Grumbine does at a late on a on a Saturday night, and let's talk to some weirdo down in Sydney. Uh, so we, we need we need people to get the votes out there. So that's the biggest thing you can do is help us get the numbers on the May 21st to hand out how to vote leaflets at local polling stations where you're doing your own vote. And unfortunately, you have to print them out yourselves because we can't afford to pay for them. But that would be great. That would be the most useful thing people can do for us. Well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're the bee's knees, and uh, I really appreciate it. I, folks, I, I mean, I'm not telling you that this is the norm. I feel blessed. I'm not going to lie. I get an opportunity to talk to a lot of really wonderful people doing what I do. Um, but Steve has made himself available to me so many times, and each time he gives me his attention, he, 
He thinks about what's going on. He, this is a very thoughtful man. And, and I speak from the heart here, um, you know, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up your tail. I promise you, this is real. I had an idea for a show. I send him a message and he's like, hey, let's Zoom. I'm on a Zoom <laughs> with Steve Keen talking about a show. I, can't, I mean, I'm, this is a guy who genuinely cares about us getting this message out there. I want you to know that for real. Like he has made himself available at crazy times. I mean, middle of the night, I can't even do that. Right. I mean, I, I, he has made himself, he is that much of a believer. I, I, if I can just tell you, when you're looking for someone who really is a true believer, someone who you don't have to wonder about their motive, that you can trust, Steve Keen's your man. That's, that's Thank the guy you. Thank you, Steve. right there. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, anyway, final parting words. Anything you'd like to say before we cut it loose? Uh, no, this, it's, it's a hard ask. It's a hard ask uh, to do what I'm trying to do and to get there. So, you know, my, my, I, I'm not confident of getting across the line. I need 14.5% of the vote. That's the, that's the difficult. It's better than running in a house of reps, but it's 14.5% of uh, our University of New South Wales. Long story there. I left there about 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Western Sydney, four, eight years ago. So I haven't got the students on there, but I'm talking to Extinction Rebellion this week, and I'm hoping I can get members of Extinction Rebellion to help out. Um, so anyway, but yeah, it's a hard ask, uh, but I need 14.5% of the vote. I certainly would love to get 4% or more of the primary vote, because that's when you put one on the ticket. And so if people put one against my name, they can put two to the if Labor Party, if they want to go to Labor Party, or two to the Greens. Uh, even if I don't get across, the vote they make won't be wasted. It'll go to the to the other party. So if you vote for me, it will not mean the Liberals get elected. The, the exact opposite, in fact. So getting to the 4% is vital. Tell your friends, put me down as first preference. The TNL, on the ballot papers, it happens. It's a brilliant system over here to allocate where the people go on the ballot paper. And my party, fortunately, TNL is, is, is number B. So A is the Animal Welfare Group, and B is uh, TNL. So put one in the B column for New South Wales. and then. Put the rest of your votes wherever you like. I'm putting preferences out of suggestions, but that's that's the thing to do. If we get 4%, then according to Australian electoral law, the party will earn $3 per vote, which means $600,000, which will finance an effective secretariat for the 2025 elections. That's why it's worthwhile. Uh, but even if you can't persuade your friends to vote one for me, if they voted one for even Labor, even vote one for the Liberals, if you've got people who are we call rusted on voters who won't change, if they put me two, three, four, five, or six, uh, then there'll be excess votes that go to the Liberals. They'll get more than enough to get two senators, not enough for three. The excess votes will be distributed according to the preference list. So even if I get the second preference from people, I will get votes from the, say, 0.5 of a, of a quota for a senator that the Liberals can't use. The Australian system is very, very well thought out, very intelligent way of making sure that the uh, the opinions of people in, in the Senate reflect the wishes of individual voters. So that's the main thing to do. Get that message out there. We've got under two weeks now, 13 days to go. Uh, so hammer it. Talk to your friends. Talk to your family. Anybody at all. If you can't persuade them to put me number one, make it at least two, three, four, five, or six on the Senate. And that might get us get us the 4%. So we've got an effective position for the 2025 election. If enough of the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth preferences go my way, 
I could crack the 14 and a half percent that I need to get elected. So that's what that's our ambition. Well, that's very ambitious. And I hope this video here uh, will help you get there. Hopefully we can cut up a few of those things. That's why I gave you that slot. Man. Yep. Maybe we can cut it up and make it something for you, brother. Um, That'd be great. And with Thanks, that, too. you got it, man. I want to thank you once again. And folks, thank you for joining us. It was a great turnout tonight. Uh, we've had, you know, up to 70 people. Uh, which I didn't anticipate, uh, you know, sort of unannounced. We, you know, we had a couple hours to kind of push this yeah. through. So thank you for joining us. And Steve, I can't wait to talk to you again on Macro and Cheese. Good luck in your election. Good luck in your travels and good luck in your health. Um, and with that, I'm going to go ahead and get us out of here, folks. Steve Grumbine, and let me do it solo with the Rogue Scholar, Steve Keen. We're out of here. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.